Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. We're back in John. I'm not sure that's a comment about anything there, Keith. But and where we are in John is John five. You know, it's really really weird. I thought we were way further in John than we actually were, and then I looked at it and I thought, oh man, we're still in John five. So okay, so to bring us back to where we are in John five, what's happened in John five? Who remembers what actually happened? in John 5 that sort of set off this uh, discourse that Jesus is going into. Jesus did something good. What was the good thing he did? He healed, uh, he healed a guy, okay? A guy was uh, lame. He, he could, hadn't walked for a long time in his life, maybe his whole life. We, we're, not, we're not really told that. And so Jesus went to him and he said, you know, take up your bed, take up your, your mat, and, and go home and, and start to walk. And so the guy did that. So Jesus did a good thing, right? But not everybody thought it was a good thing. Why not? Because he did it on a day, on the Sabbath day, when some of the people said, that's not right that you do that on the Sabbath day. And what would have been their justifiable, I think we could use that word, um, argument for that? The guy would have to walk with his mat. And what was so bad about that? Work. And what's so bad about work? All right. But because there was the issue of the third commandment. Remember the third commandment said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so then it was this big argument was, well, well, what does that mean? Well, then in kind of the meaning of it in, uh, in in the log, God had sort of stipulated that on the seventh day, that man was not to do any work. Why? Because God rested on the seventh day. And so that was to be the example. That was to be the, the, uh, the, the pattern that the people, then the believers, were to follow. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That, that six days are devoted to work, and then one day is devoted to rest, and so the idea of rest and worship and, 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 and sort of re- being refreshed and being replenished makes, makes perfect sense, that that was a good thing that God had provided for his people. But you know how it is when people get a hold of things. They can never leave well enough alone, right? And so then what began to happen was, over time, is that the people that were really interested in kind of governing this, and, and in some sense, not trying to control people, but just the idea that, hey, I just want to help you understand what this means so that you can worship God better. So then they started to lay out what does work, what does work consist of, and what does work not consist of, and what are the things somebody could do, and they could do it in good faith and good conscience as a believer, and still follow the commandment, and then what are those things that uh, you couldn't do, or that if you did do them, you would be violating the commandment. And so by the time Jesus came along, they had volumes of books, and, and, and all of these uh, numbered sort of rules or uh, detailed stipulations in terms of what work, what consisted of work, and what did not consist of work. And so the idea 
of somebody carrying his, his, uh, his uh, bedroll with him, uh, irrespective of the fact that he had been healed, and he was now probably going to be a contributing member to society rather than somebody who, who was dependent on the generosity of others, that was all lost. It, was, it came down to the fact of you are doing something wrong on the Sabbath because you're carrying this bedroll on the Sabbath. So that's what uh, instigated this, this confrontation between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees were kind of the group that you sort of get the sense from the Gospels that they kind of followed Jesus around all the time, and they were wanting to make sure that Jesus was following the rules the way the rules were supposed to be followed. Yeah, Carl. Jewish law is still alive and well. When we went to Israel, uh, the hotels have Sabbath elevators. That means that they stop on every single floor and open the door so that no one will have to push the button. <gasps> oh, because that extent, extent. That would be worked in. Yeah. Debbie, you had an incident, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I was walking down the hall and um, a desperate young lady came out just towards me. Uh-huh. And I, I didn't really know because it was I was by myself. Yeah. And she's like, are are you Jewish? And I'm like, no. And she goes, can you come help me? And I mean, she is animated. Right. And I said, yes. And she said, come to my room. (laughs) Oops. Okay. So I go to her room. I kind of stand at the door for a little bit. And she goes, can you turn off the light? And uh, I had to come in the room to turn off the light in her bedroom. It was a—it uh, was like a suite. Yeah. And so it was a little unnerving. Uh, there were some people on the couch, and they didn't move. And she, I guess she wanted to go to sleep in the dark room. So uh, yeah. So yeah. I left, um, but she was not allowed to turn off the lights. So yeah. Yeah. Now you know, I think sometimes we look at that and we go. Oh, brother, you know, talk about over the top. But the flip side of it, I suspect, is that these are people that are showing a very high reverence for the Word. And I kind of think that sometimes we might be able to learn a little bit from that. Because I think, if anything, sometimes we sort of look at the Word in a very casual way. And we kind of sort of reserve it for Sunday... Maybe that family Bible that you have, you know, kind of almost like it's an accessory to life rather than it really being something that when you read it, you go, you know, I think that maybe that might make a profound impact on my life. And so maybe there's something to be gained by that. Now, obviously, when you go too far in terms of reverence for the law. And that's really what we're talking about here, which is so great that we're here on Reformation Sunday being able to kind of talk about relationship of law and gospel. That if you lose sight of the gospel and your primary focus is on God's law, then what happens is it turns into this fear that I might do something that would step on the law, step on the word. God might be displeased with me in some way. Certainly other people are going to be displeased if they're watching me and they are, you know, very strict about it. But I think there is something, again, to be gained by the idea that we hold high reverence for the law and the gospel. 
And we value the law because the law reminds us of our need for the gospel, does it not? That's what, that's what the Romans verses this morning were talking about is that, you, you know, we certainly are obedient to the law or that's our, that's our goal, that's our in- attempt, um, but sometimes what happens is we trip over the law. And, and we can't do everything that the law wants us to do, and we feel sad and, and bad about that. And so then that's when the gospel comes in and says, you're forgiven and you're loved and, and, and heaven is yours and, and all those kinds of things. So it's always the balance of the law and the gospel. And I would say probably in that situation that uh, that woman wasn't uh, too certain about the gospel, at least from a Jewish perspective. But what a kind thing that you did. That was really, that was really fantastic that you did. Yeah. I felt very lucky. And uh, yeah, it was... Yeah. Yeah. Like, that hardly ever happens around here. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... You know, when do you get a chance to do that? Though with the elevator thing, sometimes I'm tempted, like if I go to the hospital and visit somebody and I'm up on the like 11th floor, I'm very tempted to hit all the buttons as I walk out the door, but that's not quite the same thing. That's a different, uh, that's, that's a different motive there. We have Alexa to turn the lights off for us. Oh, Alexa does it for you. Oh, yeah, I wonder, is that a, is that a work? If you're telling Alexa to do it for you, little fudgy there, yeah, you can, yeah, that, oh, Debbie is Alexa, that's what it is, yes, okay, yeah, uh, Phil. In a way, that, that really does illustrate the point of being so fearful of, of following the letter of the law that you're forgetting the spirit of the law, because like, just like with that, with, with that um, uh, story, she was so fear, like fearful and, and fo- in following the letter of the law that to not do any work in order to get rest that she wasn't getting any rest. Yeah. She couldn't go to sleep. Right. And so it does tell you about how powerful fear is. That when the fear of, of doing the wrong thing and then not having any uh, redemption of forgiveness with it or the fear that you think you're doing the right thing, and it turns out that it isn't the right thing. But you didn't know until it was too late. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just that that pervasive fear that can kick in for a lot of people. And that's, I think, the, the, uh, the downside of an overemphasis on the law. That's what legalism kind of turns into. You better do it right every time or else. And then, gosh, who of us can, uh, can escape the, the guilt that comes from that? Okay, so, so we're kind of back in the mode here of John. Are we back in the mode of that? All right, so, and by the way, you're doing a great job of projecting your voices. Did you all hear over there? Let him who has ears, let him hear. That's quoting Jesus, so how? So, but you weren't able to hear? You were able to hear? Okay, so we just have, we're, we're going to try to be mindful of that. I don't know what's wrong with you. I heard just fine, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but I'll try to remember to, uh, also to, uh, to repeat. And then maybe if Martha would just stop whispering to you over there, that would help out a lot too, right? Oh, well, let, let me add one more thing. If you'll, yes, let me, please. Let me, yeah, I really am standing. Uh, <laughs> 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 and I'm projecting and giving it all. Thank you so know. much. But I, I did giggle to myself a little bit when we were talking about that. You know, in the U.S. of A., 
if the elevator stopped on every floor, someone would be contacting OSHA because of fear that it's a safety issue that someone might fall out before or not get on. Well, that's a good point, yes. Yeah. Thank you for that public service announcement. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I'll be thinking about that next time I'm uh, over at uh, Dallas, uh, you know, at the hospital. All right, well, let's get into this, uh, John 5, uh, 25 to uh, 29. So again, remember, Jesus is still talking to the people that opposed him. Now, in, in the vicinity are the disciples, so they're hearing it, they're benefiting from it, but they're, this is still part of that discourse where they had come at him in this form of, you know, you're, you're encouraging this man to do work by carrying his bed, but you yourself did work by healing him in the first place, so you're an accessory to the fact, okay? So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what is he referring to at, at some point in the future when the, the, uh, the dead will rise and, 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 and there's going to be some sort of a, uh, a, a execution of judgment? What's he talking about? Yeah, it's talking about Judgment Day. Yeah, it's talking about when, when the end comes. And so to get some reference to that, we can look in 1 Corinthians 15, just a, a great section here. And if you've ever been to a Lutheran funeral, then this will look familiar to, be, to you because we always, uh, we always read this part in the uh, funeral liturgy. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 50 and following. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Kind of an interesting little uh, word that the New Testament epistles use to describe when Christians die. And that is the word sleep. Sleep. Now, what's interesting about that, at least to me, is when you think about death as sleep. So think about what you are like when you're asleep. How many of you know what you are like when you are asleep? <laughs> How many of you know what somebody else is like when they are asleep? And maybe they interrupt your sleep. Okay, maybe that's what that is. All right, we get that. All right. But the deal with sleep is, is you're not consciously aware. Now, 
Some people that study all this, they sort of suggest that there probably is some awareness of something at the unconscious or subconscious level. But in terms of the conscious part, Paul's use of that word sleep sort of suggests that when you go to sleep, you don't really know anything until what? Till you wake up, right? And if you think about that from the perspective of death for a Christian in particular, is that we go to sleep in Christ, and the next thing you know, what? You wake up. And when you wake up, nothing's changed. Now, maybe you've changed, you know, body, soul, etc. But nothing's changed in terms of your relationship to Christ and to God. And that's the beauty of it, is that once you die, when you, if you die in faith, then you wake up in faith. And that has, there's nothing that has changed that. Now, that is quite a bit different from the perspective that our Catholic, our Roman Catholic friends take. Because Roman Catholics take the perspective that there is an interim, that there is an in-between reality that happens between life and uh, between death and, and uh, when you wake up. And that the waking up is in a place or a condition called what? Purgatory. Do you know? Purgatory. Yeah, purgatory. So I have some Catholic friends that I routinely am asking about this because I, my Lutheran brain cannot get around that idea. And so anyway, and, and so I'll, I'll keep you posted. I, I have not yet understood this, but basically the idea of it is, is that the purpose of purgatory is to purify a person so that they're purified enough to enter into heaven. And my brain can't get, I can't get my brain wrapped around that because I'm thinking that if you're forgiven through faith in Christ, then you're already purified in the sense that you, that Christ's purity is, is covering you. And that when, when God looks at you, he looks at the purity of Christ. And then, so anyway, it's a very complex thing. So please don't ask me any more questions about it because I've given you the full extent now of of what my brain can comprehend. Okay. Yeah. Robert. When someone is dying and they go into a coma. They go into a coma when they die. No, when they're in a coma, they're not dead yet. I know. Oh. But you got to be careful what you're talking about because they can still hear. Is that correct? Well, you said when they die, so that's what confused me. Oh, okay, you're not dead, but in a coma. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, people that are on hospice, hospice um, professionals will tell us that hearing is the last of the senses to go. And so the idea of being with somebody when, they, when they're dying, when they're close to death, and they're hearing your voice... Okay, um, that's a very soothing idea. That's a really precious thing. You don't get to hear their voice, but they hear your voice, Sharon, you're kind of nodding like you've, I know you used to work in, in that field. And so there is a, uh, there's a real blessing that you can give and that you can be. And it's not really content-based when you're talking. It's more presence-based, it's, it's the sound of your voice. It's the soothing sort of nature of it. So if you're wanting to do something like get information from the person, don't, you know, that's not what it is, or that you would be worried 
that what you're saying would be um, troubling. It's not that. It's not even content-based. It's presence-based. Yeah. Yeah. This whole thing of, of purgatory, if I was correctly informed, purgatory wasn't, didn't actually occur until, is it like, the 900s, the 1100s? The 11th, uh, it was the 11th century. Okay, the 11th century. 11th century. And it was created by the hierarchy of Catholicism for people to get, pay more indulgences, more indulgences. It was a money-making thing. And I, and I don't think it needed to be clear. It wasn't the idea that was clear because as a Catholic growing up, I always thought purgatory was, I was taught purgatory is like hell. You were taught that purgatory was like hell instead of yeah. the waiting place sort of oh, idea? absolutely. Yeah. That's why we were so scared of it. So we used to say these indulgences, Lord have mercy, Lord have... You got 300 days off for every indulgence. And oh. I would just sit there as a young child and repeat them over and over and over again because okay. I didn't know how many I was going to... You know. Yeah. How, how I, was I mean, you got to cover your bases. I mean, you have to do that. Yeah, so sure. So I would just go on and on and on, and it didn't mean anything. But I assume that in the church they were they were paying for these indulgences. Okay. So it, it's not. That's why you can't find it in the Bible. No, you can't. There's not that. There is not that. So it. But you're saying that your experience of what was going on in the 1100s was still real for you, in your in your young life. Right, yeah, so it carried, it carried forth. So again, you can kind of see where, and I, I think I'm hearing you say that that created a lot of uncertainty for you uh, and, fear. and fear, sort of the anxious of, well, have I done it enough, and then did I do it the right way, and then even for some people, it's did I do it the right way, and was my motive pure in doing it? So now I'm, I'm really worried at a deeper level. Well, how do I know I was doing it for the right reason? Maybe I was doing it for this reason, but maybe I wasn't even paying attention. I was just doing it because my mother made me because she was watching me. I mean, you know, that's what happens. No, when fear, is, when fear is driving something, you start worrying about not only did you do it, did you do it enough, did you do it good enough, but you start worrying about, well, what were my thoughts pure while I was doing it? And it just feeds on itself, that anxiety. Isn't it refreshing to have the gospel come along and say, Jesus did it for you. You don't have to do it for God because Jesus did it for you. How refreshing is that? How did, you, how did you get over to become a Lutheran, by the way? I had an incident with a, a priest when I was asking because I was divorced. How was I going to be able to come back? Yeah. And he told me I could come back. I was welcome to just... If I got married, I couldn't take the sacraments because in the eyes of the church, I was an adulteress. Sure. And so I had a four-year-old. What do I tell him? He goes, well, you'll just have to explain that you're an adulteress. And you, I mean, uh, so, yeah. so, so damning. Sure. And so Ron and I had only been dating about three months, and I went from there to his house mm -hmm. just bawling. And um, he started sharing the gospel with me and pulled out the Bible. And was, there you go. What a story. So it's Ron's fault. Way to go. Nice. That's great. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. That's awesome. But again, that's that reassuring part of the gospel. And, and when we say, you know, oh, I'm so glad God did it for me, that it, you could, I suppose, as, as Pastor Coleman pointed out in the sermon today, you could kind of go the, the route or the extreme of cheap grace. Well, then, oh, okay, Jesus did everything for me, and now I don't have to do anything. I mean, there, there is that human tendency to think that way. But when you, 
when you take into consideration the damning effect of sin, which nobody wants to talk about that today. I mean, much less talk about sin, right? But the damning effect of sin is that it separates me from God. So if it does that, the only hope I have is forgiveness. Because there's no other way to get connected to God other than through forgiveness. I can't connect myself through God, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. You can be the best, goodest person there is. Don't you love that word, goodest? <laughs> you can be the goodest person there is, and it won't count as far as your relationship with God because you're the goodest person, you're the goodest sinner there ever was, and you're still a sinner, right? Yeah, Tim. Uh, speaking of like sin and judgment, uh, there's kind of a, a reference in this passage, and I think also referencing earlier here in chapter 5, where it says, like, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Well, uh, what and verses are you reading from? Well, that's earlier in chapter 5, but here in John 5, 25, it says, uh, it talks about uh, the Son having judgment. But this is where it confuses me, where it talks about the Son came to not be served, but to serve. It's God who judges, but here it's saying, like, the Son has judgment. Can you elaborate on that? In a minute. <laughs> yeah, in a minute. Because we're going to go down that path because then it, he, he states that here and then he builds on it. Okay, so kind of we're, we're building a pyramid. Okay, all right. So we're as, sort of le- leaning on the foundation here. Yeah. I got to share a visual I just had when you were saying if fear drives things. A visual that you a had? Visual a visual, that okay. You said that because fear is not from God. It's from Satan. So I was. My visual was Satan driving a Mack truck. You know. Satan driving a Mack truck. Okay. If fear is driving things, you want to stay out of the way. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. It's a. It's kind of a frightening visual. It's amazing that you came to that visual. That's uh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty awesome. No, Tim. Not yet. <laughs> Carl. You were out of the same background, yeah. And the reason I was raised Catholic, and you know those those candles, little candles, the votives. Yeah, the votive candles that are around those those statues. Light a candle for your time in purgatory to reduce your time or someone else's. Mm -hmm. It's a prayer candle. Yeah. And I was even an altar boy, and I started asking the question. And I couldn't get answers. And it finally dawned on me, I said, well, if Christ didn't do it for me, and there is a purgatory, so I've got to work my way, mm-hmm. there ain't no way. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to get to heaven. Right. So I left. Just yeah. flat left. Mm-hmm. Thank God for her, because it brought me back. <laughs> Good. We, we rejoice in that, too. It sounds like there's lots of experiences with this. But, you know, the reality is, is that you don't have to come out of a Catholic background in order to get con- to be confused about some of this stuff. And I think, again, part of it is just, it, it's, it's human nature to think that it couldn't possibly be free. Right? I mean, that's just, that's kind of a normal thing. In fact, it, it, like how many ads do you get on your phone or your, your computer where they're saying to you that it's free? And what is the first thought you have when they say it's free? 
scam, you know, or somebody's trying to steal something from me, or you look for the fine print, like those commercials on the radio where the guy talks real fast. You know the one I'm talking about? He, he talks so fast, I can't even understand him. But as soon as that happens, then you know there's a catch, right? There's something you have to purchase or there's something that you have to, you have to do in order to receive the thing that's free. And that's human nature to think like that. That's just part of our world that we live in. And because we do, then you think in terms of God's grace and the idea that, that Jesus paid the price and that everything he did was enough. You know, his last words on the cross were paid in full. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means he, everything he did is, was enough to uh, take care of the issue of the fact that I'm a sinner and that sin separates me from God and the only way that that, that can be redeemed is through him. So that's, pretty, that's a pretty cool thing, but, but it is counter-instinctual. It, it just doesn't go with our sort of way of thinking in terms of hum, human until we're in a desperate place where we realize that the, the enormity of that and that's when the gospel comes in and it's such a special, wonderful moment when it hits you that, it, well, it never was about you, you know? And so that's a pretty cool thing. Okay, somebody else. Yeah, Bob, please. Uh, since it's Reformation Sunday, I think what we're talking about is justification by faith alone. Yes, yes. And justification in the Protestant church is deemed justification. You're declared just. Mm-hmm. Justification in the Catholic Church is works yeah. justification. You are not justified until you finish purgatory. Right. And that's that purification idea that you... You've you, got to become clean right. before you become justified. That's right. In the Protestant Church, you are deemed justified. God, Jesus paid the price. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. And so again, that's that difference between... And, and the security that comes from knowing that it's already taken care of, as opposed to standing at the gate and you're not sure that enough has been done. I mean, imagine what that would be like. See, oh my gosh, you're, I'm third in line and I'm thinking to myself, oh gee, you know, did I do enough, right? And maybe I'm listening carefully to the two guys in front of me and I'm hearing all the wonderful things they did with their life and I'm wondering, oh, God, I, oh, man, oh, man. And that would be the kind of terror that we would be talking about in terms of the terror that would drive people's lives. And in a tiny, small way, the lady that you encountered on your trip might have been living with that same uncertainty. So again, we always, you know, it, it, it's just something, and, and Reformation Sunday is a perfect day to do it, but, but it, I think it probably is something that we ought to think more often about that it's, it's paid for you. It's, it's, already, it's already given to you, and nothing changes that. When you die, you wake up, and it's the same for you as it was uh, your, that condition is when you die. Now, just one other part to this is that he, he's talking about what happens to Judgment Day. So when the trumpet sounds, the dead will rise. And then also the people that are still alive will rise. That, that's a different verse, talks about that uh, in Thessalonians. But it's this idea of what happens to 
the perishable body that you died with is raised what? Imperishable. So the question is, is that good news or bad news? For some it's good, for some it's bad. Yes, and what makes the difference? For whom is it bad news? There's all the people that aren't saved. That's correct. So you would then spend eternity in hell with an, uh, a non-perishable body, whereas those who are believers will spend eternity in heaven with a non-perishable body. Right? I get, did I say that right? Yeah. And so, see, that's where the, the good thing can also be a, it can be a blessing, but it also can be a curse. And so that's the beauty here of what, uh, of what he says. Now, so we go on. So Jesus says, you know, the dead will hear the voice and, and those who hear will live. And the father has life in himself and has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, it is kind of interesting that Jesus here is portrayed as the one who's executing judgment. I feel like I'm spilling the beans on Pastor Coleman's sermon. But, you know, he referenced this stained glass picture, remember, that he grew up with in the Catholic Church. And there was this picture of Jesus with a sword. And you had the, you know, all these people are down below and they're being dragged off to hell. I mean, that would be a terror picture. But that would be something that certainly would get the attention of somebody who was, who was uncertain about his standing with God. So there is this idea of Jesus as judge, correct? There is that, and we sort of see that here. We're going to get down into Matthew 25, and we'll see that there is an expression of that that Jesus is kind of responsible for, if you will, at, uh, at Judgment Day. But again, he says, don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are on the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Sounds an awful lot like to me that you get there by working. Doesn't it sound like that to you? Thank goodness there's more in the Bible than just this, right? All right, so let's take a look at Matthew 25, 31 to 46, at the bottom of page 48 in your guide. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How many of you can remember when you didn't do a good thing? (laughs) Come on, everybody raise your hands. We do, right? I mean, we remember the time when we did good things, but you know, the the things that haunt us just a little bit are those times when we should have done the good thing, we should have done the right thing, and we didn't do it. And I think for a lot of us, sins of omission kill us worse than sins of, of commission. Do you know the difference? Sins of commission is where you did the wrong thing, right? Sins of omission is where you should have done the right thing and you didn't do it, okay? So it, the Bible gets you coming and going. There's just, no way, there's just no way around that. So we all remember times when we didn't do the right thing or the good thing. Just like the people that are mentioned here in the second group. Now, when you look at that second group, are we to assume that those people never did any good thing ever in their lives? And yet, he doesn't say anything about any of the good things they did. He only says what they didn't do. What do you make of that? I think it's a matter of the heart. It's the matter of the heart, she says. I'm going to need for you to say more than that. Rats. Rats. If your heart is filled with love for Jesus, you are doing these things. You are visiting the sick. You are doing this. You do this out of love for what Christ did for you. If you don't have that assurance, that knowledge of Christ and all like that, you ignore the sick. You ignore the person sitting on the corner who is hungry. Because your heart is hardened. But you don't. There are tons of people in the world who do wonderful things for other people. Right? Right. And maybe, the, but they're, maybe they're not believers. But yet, they're giving money and building buildings and, and, doing, and, and giving water bottles to people that are on the street. I mean, there are wonderful things that unbelievers are doing in the world. And yet, when at the end... When Jesus is talking to them, to the unbelievers, none of that is mentioned. The only thing that's mentioned is what they didn't do, and you sort of get the impression that even what they did in the good that they did doesn't even show up on the ledger, right? That's the the impression that you get. So you're on the right track, okay? I'm trying not to lead you down the path here too deeply, all right? Okay? All right, yes. Someone else brave enough to get into this? I was projecting. <laughs> <laughs> I heard her, so I volunteered. It's because you, are, you will not get to heaven and be known by your works. Well, that's an interesting twist. And yet, there, there are allusions to the idea that when we enter into heaven, those who were faithful with little 
will be faithful with much. So there's a little bit of a, it's a little vague, but I wonder about that part. We don't get there by our works, that's for sure. But once we're there, perhaps it is for the believers that what you did with your life has some benefit in heaven, not getting you there just once you're there. I don't know. Well, maybe it's what's in your heart and whether or not you did it for your own benefit and for uh, just to be So now we're kind of getting to the, the crux of the matter. Okay, now think about what he said to the believers. What did he say to them? He said, look at all the stuff you did. And they go, oh, we don't even remember doing it. So that tells you a little bit about how it works for a believer is that we're not necessarily keeping score. We're tempted to, of course. Haven't you ever told your kid, after all I've done for you? <laughs> Haven't you done that? Of course you have, yes. We keep score with our kids, no one else. But there is that, that, I think there is that, this sort of wrestling a little bit with how does, how do the good that you do, if it doesn't count to get me there, then what is the relationship of the good that I do to my life? And how does this, this this isn't a parable, how does this account give that to me? So to get the answer to that, and I want to relieve everyone's anxiety before we have to leave today, okay? So, So go back to verse 32. What happens in the story prior to any mention of works and what you did with your life and whether it was enough and good enough and even if it was for the right motive. What is it that happens that's very pivotal? What does Jesus do? He separates believers from unbelievers. So what constitutes a believer versus an unbeliever? What's the qualification for being a believer? You're a believer if you what? Believe in Jesus. And you're not a believer if you don't believe in Jesus. That's pretty simple. And that's the expression of the judgment that he is exercising. Because he as judge in that case knows who is who. He knows the sheep. He knows the goats. And he says, okay, on the basis of faith in Christ, here's that separation. See, the separation is not based on what you did with your life. The separation is based on who you put your faith in and what he did for your life, right? Isn't that beautiful? And so then what happens is after the separation has occurred and it isn't going to change. See, in terms of the, what he says is about, you know, what you did and what you didn't do, he doesn't like change his mind and say, oh, wait a minute, you know what? You did do a lot of good things. I think you should go over here and you blew it so much. I think you should go over here. He doesn't do that. The separation is permanent, right? And then once it occurs, then he talks to them about what you did with your life. And it really is indicative, I think, of people who do serve with their heart, is that you're, you're not really thinking about what you're doing when you do it. You just do it. But we don't want to make the judgment and say that those who don't believe don't do good, because there's a, a ton of good that's done in the world. It's just that it's good for the fellow man, and it doesn't really uh, have any, any merit in terms of earning salvation or something like that. Does that distinction make sense to you? Okay, I want to make sure I'm clear on that. Okay, we had, did we had a hand up? 
Oh, yeah, Robert. Uh, who, who was the gal in India that would go along the road and would bless people and put a little water on their lips or something like that? He's asking who was the lady in, in India who, who would do these acts of mercy with people? Is that Mother Teresa who we might be talking about? Yeah. And, and she was going along with some people, like reporters or what have you, and they asked, How can you do that? Mm -hmm. And she said something like, I can't. The Lord's doing it. Yeah, so people would say, How can you do that? Especially with people that could not repay the kindness. I mean, that's really, that's a burdensome mercy, isn't it? To, to give mercy to people that where they can't do anything or wouldn't do anything. And, and yet she kept doing it. How do you able to do it? It's God doing it through me. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Okay, well, I think what we're going to do is we're going to stop here. Um, and then we'll pick it up next week with verse 30 and following. And then we'll just, you know, do our usual John thing, which is like take five years to get through it. Okay, that's what we'll do. All right, good stuff today. No, this is really good because, because again, it, it sets the foundation for what we'll be talking about later with this idea of, of abiding. You know, what is he talking about when he says abide in me? And uh, fantastic stuff today. Good, good discussion. And thank you for projecting and, and for standing up and doing all those uh, little things that we do to sort of care for each other in here as well. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the, the blessing that your word is to us and the way that it challenges us in, in our thinking about where do we find our ultimate security? Is it in what we do or is it in what you have done for us? And we're so blessed to have the, the gift of your word in our lives, the gospel, which continually speaks that, that word of truth, that it really is about what you've done for us. And that then in gratitude for what you've done for us, we're able to go out and serve in the world and do it with the joy of knowing that when we do it, others are blessed. And when we do it, that we are blessed as well. So, dear Lord, I pray that you will challenge each of us with those opportunities in the coming week. And that as we uh, seek to serve you, sometimes we'll be successful, sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll think to ourselves, oh, I could have done it better. But the beauty of that is, is that even in those situations, your forgiveness covers us all. So cover us all, dear Lord, this week until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.